You're listening to Ice Cream with Investors, a podcast that is dedicated to teaching you how to better invest your money so that you can live a more intentional life. I'm your host, Matt Four, and it is my goal to teach and empower you to remove the roadblocks to your financial success. All right, welcome back to the show. I'm super excited about this. Today we have Yona Weiss on. If that name doesn't ring a bell to you, then you probably have never been on LinkedIn because this man is everywhere. In his day job, he is a business development representative for Madison Specs, a specialist firm that helps investors save tens and millions of dollars on their real estate investing in the form of tax benefits. And because of this, He has been featured on over a hundred different podcasts and hosts his own podcast called Weiss Advice, which is one of the better real estate podcasts out there. I've got to say, I look up your podcast and I hope that I can mold myself after that. But beyond that, Yona is a father of six kids and he's coming to us today from Jerusalem. And I'm super excited for him to share his knowledge and simple way for us to legally avoid paying taxes on our investments. But with that, Yona, welcome to the show. Thank you, Matt. This is a pleasure to be joining you. Really excited to be here with you and just you know, looking forward to this conversation. Absolutely. Well, we were joking about your background. You usually do a very special thing for your podcast hosts and have a picture of the city where they are located in their background. So we were joking, for those of you that don't know, I am in Tampa today and Tampa's water looks like that sometimes in the Bay Area there. So we're going with the theme and you're still on point there. Yona, we like to start with difficult questions here. What is your favorite ice cream? You know, I've given it a lot of thought and I have to go with coffee. Coffee ice, just plain and simple. Simple coffee simple. ice cream. Always loved it since I was a little kid. I like it even when you were a kid? Yeah, my favorite thing until I started like drinking coffee when I was an adult and then I stopped liking coffee ice cream. But still, when I get a chance, I prefer it over almost anything else. Okay. Toppings or no toppings? You know, you can add some sprinkles on there, maybe a little chocolate syrup, get it going. But plain coffee ice cream is also good if it's good. Awesome. All right. Well, tell our listeners, what's the scoop? What do you do today? The scoop is I am, as you mentioned in the introduction, which is a very nice introduction there, I help real estate investors pay less income tax. It's a very cool strategy called cost segregation. And that's really what my main job is. So I'm really helping people all across the country to pay less taxes. So people love me, really, (laughs) That's to be honest with you. Yeah, we're coming up on April here and it's time to start writing some checks. And I bet people love the fact that they can talk to you and find ways to lower that tax burden. And I wanna dig in deeper to that. But before we get there, you have an interesting background. You didn't come up through the real estate ranks. Tell us a little bit about your background. Sure, I think it's actually interesting that most people that I speak with who are in real estate currently, I'd say the majority of people come from another profession where they come from something else and then transition into real estate. So I don't feel kind of unique in that regard, but uh, what I did is a little bit different than a lot of people. I mean, most people coming from, you know, high paid W2 jobs, whether it be in the tech, you know, IT or, you know, medical, something like that. I came from being a teacher. And so that's really where my passion lies and, and still does today. As a parent, obviously, that, that's something that we do all the time. But I've been a teacher since I was really in grade school as a tutor and you know, doing things like that, camp counselor, all these different types of roles. And I just loved it. But at a certain point, a teacher's job doesn't really pay the bills as well as they could. My wife is a stay-home mom, which I love and I encourage. And we just came a time I needed to find something else to bring in some more income. And I kind of searched and found real estate. 
Awesome. I don't think I've ever heard. What did you teach? You know, I taught a variety of different subjects. The main things I was teaching were actually mostly Jewish texts and things like that, Bible or, or the Talmud and different uh, areas of that, but all the way up from up to like post-collegiate level. So even some deep mysticism and things like that. Very interesting concepts. That's awesome. That's awesome. I know a lot of people in 2020 had some changes with their jobs and adopted new skill sets and things like that. Are there any best practices or anything that you took from your teaching that have helped you in your real estate career? I think the biggest thing is the humility that comes with teaching that you have to realize you're <laughs> you're, te you're dealing with people, you're dealing with students and you're creating relationships and you're trying to form them and, and get them to get to a place where they're not at yet. And, and really that comes, a really good teacher is a student. And so in real estate, there's so much to learn. It's a whole new industry. There's, if you're a student and being a good student, it brings along that humility and realizing that I have to learn from anyone and everyone and find the right people to learn from. So that was probably the biggest skill that's transferable from anywhere, but definitely into real estate. Man, I love that. I mean, I think if there's one thing this world needs a little bit more of, it's everybody needs to take a little bit of dose of humility. I absolutely love that. You decided that, hey, this teaching thing, I want to evolve my career and move into a different real estate segment. I think one of the things that you have done absolutely better than anyone I've seen is really grow your brand and your network on LinkedIn. So first, I kind of want to talk through like, why LinkedIn? Why is that the best platform that you found to kind of grow your network? So I found LinkedIn really before I found any other network, just to be clear. So, you know, I was not really on Facebook. I didn't use social media up until a little over three years ago. And LinkedIn, I had a profile for probably, I don't know, 10, 15 years or so, but it was like everyone else. It was just like a place you post your resume and you forget about it. Maybe check back every couple of years or something like that if you're looking for a job, but that's what LinkedIn was. About three years ago, it transitioned and it turned more into social media, really networking and content sharing platform. So much different than what it was for all those years. And it turned into, I mean, a lot of people say it's kind of turned into Facebook for the analogy, but what it really has done is turned into a more place to grow your personal brand and network. And the reason why I focused there more than the other places and didn't really branch out into Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter, all these other things, because it is business focused. I like to think of it like going to a business networking event or a conference. And you're there 24 seven and really you can interact and meet people from all walks of life. And that's one of the main reasons why I focus on LinkedIn. As I've kind of gone down my real estate journey, I think the analogy of commercial real estate, multifamily real estate is really a team sport is very, very applicable, right? Like I grew my real estate portfolio in the single family industry and I could go mm -hmm. grab assets, put together a contracting team. There wasn't really a lot of things going on in the air. But as you get into these bigger projects, you've got things like cost segregation and taxes. You've got things like development, due diligence and aligning financing, financing the deal, finding the deals and all that. So I love that you've kind of gravitated towards that and really developed a strong brand there. What are some best practices or tips that you've found over the past couple of years that have helped you grow that brand? Consistency is the number one thing. So just being there consistently and posting original content and engaging with the community. There's a few different things I threw out there and I'm happy to break them down, explain what I mean by that. But one of the main things when I say consistency is you just have to be there. 
every day. And you're talking about growing your brand. Brand is, I mean, the definition of having a brand is that when people see you, they know and they relate to you something, okay? If that's what you do, who you are, something about you. And so whatever it is that thing, and if you're on LinkedIn and you're trying to grow your sales or grow your business or partnerships or whatever, you want to make sure that it's very clear what it is that you do and how you can help people. And so when they see you and see your name and see your tagline, right, that's right under you, they'll immediately recognize that. And so that's what branding is. So the more you're out there, more people know you, they're going to align that. And the branding is, you know, just indelible. you just to use ice cream analogy, right? When you think about ice cream, right? If I were to tell you what comes to your mind when you think about an ice cream store, what's the best ice cream store? What's the best type of ice cream? Like someone's, you know, Ben and Jerry's or Haagen-Dazs or, you know, 31 flavors, whatever it is, that's going to come to your mind. Why? Because that's been in your face so many times. That's what branding is. Did you sit down before you kind of started down this journey and really say, hey, I want to be the best at this? Or did it just kind of evolve over time? It really has been a, an involvement over time. It, it's taken a lot of different forms. And I think as I've been more involved, I've just seen what works, what doesn't work and continue to evolve. It really is. It's a work in progress. Learning from especially those experts in digital marketing and in branding and things like that and watching what they do and what works for them, and then kind of applying those same kind of strategies to what I do. Because if what they're saying works, and they're making money from it, and they're bringing in the bread from what they're saying, you can know that it's true. So people like Gary Vaynerchuk and things like that, I take a lot of wisdom from in terms of strategy in personal branding and in digital marketing. Yeah, I mean, as a former teacher and as somebody that produces a ton of valuable content for the community and a father of six children, I think your brand is someone that really gives value. And I think, you know, for me, before we ever got a chance to really know each other, my immediate thought is if I have a deal, then this is the person I wanna go to as an expert on cost segregation or raising funds or different things like that. So. I think you're doing a pretty good job. And if you all, if the listeners out there don't know you, I would suggest that they get a chance to follow you on LinkedIn and connect with you because you're producing so much valuable content out there. I appreciate that. I want to switch gears on you now and talk a little bit about what you're a specialist in, which is cost segregation. So first, can you tell our listeners a little bit about Madison Specs and a little bit about what you do? And then we'll go into depreciation and cost segregation. Sure. Madison Specs and Specs is actually an acronym for Specialized Property Engineering Cost Segregation. And it's a play on words because Specs also means building plans. There were a company, actually, it's a family of companies that include other services for commercial real estate, including Title, where one of the largest national commercial title agents, 1031 exchanges, due diligence. But Madison Specs formed about 16 years ago from an accountant, a CPA, and an engineer who were working in the field at one of the largest accounting firms in the country, you know, joined forces with the existing Madison brand of title, et cetera, and went private. And that was really where it born out of. To the, since that time, we have developed and grown into the largest national cost irrigation company focusing on all asset classes working in all 50 states and have done over 17,000 studies across the nation and continue to, you know, just add value. I mean, you mentioned tens of millions of dollars. That's me personally, but the company itself has, you know, helped save over $3 billion in taxes over the course of what we're doing. And I just really love the environment, the people. I mean, it's an incredible company to work for and I'm just happy to be there. 
Yeah, so I think that saving $3 billion in taxes is phenomenal. That's got my ears perked up already, right? And one of the biggest benefits of real estate, at least in the United States, is the amount of depreciation and tax benefits you get for owning assets like that. I like to say that the government is giving you a playbook with the tax code. Like it or not, here are the rules and we abide by the rules and this is how we can legally avoid to pay taxes. So talk to us a little bit about what is cost segregation and in that maybe tell us a little bit about what is depreciation. Sure. And I think they go, you know, hand in hand because really conservation is just an advanced form of depreciation. It's something that sounds weird and it sounds like a complex thing, but in the end of the day, all it is is taking that depreciation and better utilizing it. Okay. So let's define depreciation for a second because it has a bad, has like a negative connotation. It kind of sounds like, oh, you're devaluing your property. It's going down in value. Why would I want to do that? But you have to understand that the tax deduction called depreciation is just a borrowed term. Okay, It's not really that your property is actually going down in value. It's that you are given a tax write-off, a tax deduction based on the concept that things go down in value as time goes on. So when you buy a property, any property besides for your personal residence, whether it's commercial, residential, even if it's a business property that you're an owner operator of that business, you can take a tax write-off of the entire value of your property minus land. Land doesn't depreciate a small amount to that, but that over a certain period of time. So you can literally, let's say, buy a building for a million dollars, you can write that million dollars off, tax write-off. That's crazy. I mean, it doesn't really make sense, but that's like you said, it's part of the playbook. It's part of the rules that we play by. So once you have that concept that, okay, now I can take this million dollars of tax write-off over a 27 or 39-year period, it's a long time to wait to get all those deductions. Now comes cost segregation. And it's this is not some weird like, out-of-the-box strategy. This is developed by, created, and governed by the IRS, okay? You can go to the IRS website. They have a whole guide, how to use it, how to use cost segregation, et cetera. You know, you shouldn't think this is something like out of left field that is, uh, you know, going to get you in trouble with the IRS if you try to use this. No, on the contrary, this is part of their rules. What we're doing is segregating that cost, just like the name sounds, we're breaking down that cost into different buckets, into different categories by analyzing through an engineering process every detail of a property, right? Down from the carpeting to the bolts, to the pavement outside, the parking, the landscaping, light fixtures, every tiny detail actually depreciates on a different schedule. And so instead of lumping everything together on one, you know, long schedule and taking a little bit each year equally, you can now allocate certain assets to faster depreciation lives and get those deductions up front. Let's go through an example just to make sure that I'm fully grasping this. So I buy a property for $120,000 and the land value of that is $20,000. So the building of the property is worth $100,000. I think I heard you say, basically, we can depreciate that by 27 years or 39 years, depending on if it's a personal single family or if it's a commercial. Is that right? Yeah, whether commercial defines anything that's commercial except for multifamily. Multifamily is still in the residential category. So anything that's residential is on a 27 and a half year schedule. Commercial is on a 39 year schedule. Okay. So now we've got that $100,000. We bought a multifamily unit. We take that 100,000 and divide it by 27 and a half or 27. And that's the number that we can write off on our income that that property produced. Correct. Yeah. So approximately, you know, $3,000 or so. $3,200 $3,200 or something a year for that 27-year period. So if you make on this $100,000 property, let's say 
$10,000 of income a year, let's say, net operating income. So now you can take that 3,000, immediately deduct that, and you're only gonna pay taxes on the remaining 7,000. That's how regular depreciation works. Yep, but your firm actually can go in and do something a little bit better, right? You can say, hey, of that $100,000, well, we know that carpet wears out faster than a roof and the roof wears out or longer than HVAC. So you take all these different components and you say you assign a value to those different components and help accelerate that depreciation, thus giving an investor a faster tax benefit. Is that kind of right? Very well. Hey, you summed it up better than I could. That's. <laughs> I'm That's not awesome. an accountant. I just play a bad one on YouTube. There you go. <laughs> That's great. So yeah, essentially that's what we're doing. We're looking, we're saying the carpet depreciates on a five-year schedule. The cabinets also. Anything that's really personal, considered quote unquote personal property. So meaning anything that's in the property that's non-structural. And there's a lot of things, not just furniture and appliances. Those are pretty clearly, you know, things that are non-structural, but even things like light fixtures or window treatments, so the blinds, things like that, plumbing or carpeting or vinyl flooring, which is attached, but it is considered personal property depreciates on a five-year schedule, all those things. So that's what we're doing. We're identifying exactly, like you said, what those are, taking those tax deductions over that five-year schedule. So, you know, I've been using my accountant for several years now, and they've never brought this up. Why is Madison Speck specialized in this? Why doesn't my accountant even know or talk to me about this? So I want to make two statements that hopefully won't get me in trouble with any accountants out there. But number one, is that 99% of accounting firms do not do this, okay? So it, this is because this is a specialized service and it applies to your taxes, but it is a specialized engineering service. That's why there are companies out there that do exist. So I say 99% because there are a small amount, you know, very large accounting firms, like big four, all these big uh, accounting firms, they all have engineers in-house to do this because they're dealing with large corporations, large companies that have these properties. That's the first statement. So most accountants don't do this. So they're going to anyways, if you want to do it, you're going to have to go and uh, find another firm to do this for you in the first place. Second thing is that there's a very big difference between a CPA, an accountant, and a tax strategist. Okay? And most people have an accountant because they make income, they have to pay taxes, and they need someone to do all the nitty gritty work there. But when you're involved in real estate, what you really need is, and it could be the same person. There are many CPAs that are tax strategists as well and work on that. But really what it is, is finding all these incredible loopholes, so to speak, these tax strategies within the tax code that are out there for real estate investors to take care of or take advantage of. And that tax strategy is going to be proactive to tell you about that. Whereas a CPA is there to be reactive, to take your income statements, to take your expenses, and to just plug in the numbers. That's it. It's a very big difference. That's it right there. Proactive versus reactive. I was actually on a call earlier this morning because we're coming up on tax season and I'm pulling together all my documents and all that kind of stuff. The big struggle I have with my accountant is they say, send over your 1040C.7342 and all this kind of stuff. And I'm like, I don't even know what that means, right? And I really only talk to my accountant twice a year. Now that's shame on me, but when you start getting into real estate, when you start thinking about some of these advanced tax strategies to save money, you need people that's truly specialized in this. And I've had a chance to listen to Madison Speck speak at a couple of different events. And I can tell you that this is something they're not only versed in, but experts in to help you save money. 
I want to talk about bonus depreciation because that was something that I think in the 2017 Tax Act came out, if I'm not mistaken. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about what is bonus depreciation and how can we leverage that? Sure. And you're correct. That happened in the 2017 Tax Cuts and Jobs Act. What it is, is once you've done a cost segregation study and you have identified those assets within your property that depreciate faster. So on a five-year schedule, seven-year schedule, 15-year schedule, these are the other categories that usually depreciate faster. Once you've done that, you have an option to take 100% of that, meaning all of that accelerated depreciation up front in the first year. So instead of spreading it out, right? let's say 20% of your building is in those faster categories, instead of spreading that out and getting these extra tax deductions over a five-year period, you have the option to take all of that up front in the first year. Yeah, that's huge. I mean, I talk to a lot of folks that don't really understand the benefits of real estate. And when they see, they decide they want to invest passively in a real estate investment and they get a tax paper at the end of the year called a K-1 and it shows they actually lost money this year, they're a bit shocked on that. That's what that is really, right? Is that we are saying, hey, we've got all this depreciation that normally we can take over 27 years. We're going to give you a lot of that in year one, another lot of that in year two, and help you write off a loss, quote unquote, on that property. So to be, you know, just to clarify there, it doesn't mean you actually lose money. It just on paper looks like that. You'll have $10,000 of income and you'll have $50,000 of deductions, which means it's going to show like that a loss is going to show $40,000 loss, which means you're number one, not paying any taxes on the income you're making from that investment, which is huge. I mean, there's almost no other asset class in the world that you can get return on your investment and not pay taxes on that also. But the second thing is, is that that carries forward. So if you can't use it this year, it doesn't just disappear. You can use it in the next year or in future years. Awesome. I love it. All right. I want to switch gears on you now because you also, beyond talking about real estate, being an expert podcast host, being a teacher, being a father, doing all these things are a real estate investor right now. So what are you working on right now? Are you investing anything? You looking at properties, anything you could shed light on there? I try to look at property. I try to look and find deals. Not a lot. Unfortunately, just everything that I have a plate full a lot of stuff comes across my inbox that I look at and have invested many years ago. I did some fix and flips and that just was not good for me. Didn't work out. But right now what I'm really focused on is trying to find the right partners to partner up with for larger multifamily and potentially other types of asset classes as well. Multifamily is one that I understand a lot and have a lot of you know connections within the industry so I can really execute that well. So that's really where my focus is right now is moving the next step into finding on the general partnership side, meaning being an active investor, not just passively, which I've done to you know transition more into that. Yeah. For those of us that are only listening and not watching, I smiled really big when you said fix and flip, because I joke that when I'm swinging a hammer, you'd never know if I was right-handed or left-handed. So the fix and flip game is not really for me either. That's why I'm kind of moving more into bigger assets like multifamily. With the network that you have and the job that you do, that you have talking to real estate investors every day and being on so many podcasts and things like that, I'm interested to kind of gain some insight on what are some trends you're seeing out there right now in 2021? Trends in terms of in terms of what? The, the investing space? Yeah, yeah. Whether it be cap rates or ESG requirements or the great migration we're seeing to the Southeast and out of California and New York right now, just anything that kind of sticks out to you. 
Sure. I, you know, I think you've touched on a, a bunch of really important points right there. And I'll just add to that, that like, you know, anytime there's going to be new things that are happening within the, you know, the macroeconomics of the country. And you just have to be cognizant of what's happening. Follow those trends, right? Read up on reports, see where, I mean, I prefer to only invest in and look at areas where there is population growth, right? Consistent population growth. Those are the places where you want to invest, where there's also consistent job creation. Now, in the past year, it's been very difficult because so many people have lost jobs and people are kind of hanging on. You know, they may have a job, but they haven't been working or they have, and it's maybe they're working remotely now. I think there is going to be a lot of movement from uh, big cities, much, much more so than we've even seen until now, because you know, especially big office and things like that, it's not going to be necessary anymore. I think people have realized over the past nine, 11 months or so what's happened and what the possibilities are. And even though some people are looking forward to going back to what they consider the norm, I think a lot more people are looking forward to seeing how can we now adapt what we've been doing until now and have worked. I mean, for our, our firm, for example, we had been toying with the idea of doing virtual site visits to the properties for, you know, for some time, meaning we have engineers and, you know, they're all in-house on staff and they would go travel all across the country and we have them stationed in different locations anyways, but 16 engineers, but, you know, they would still have to travel. We have one in Los Angeles, you know, she's going to go to have a property in San Diego. It's still a two hour drive, right? If she has a property, she has to go in, you know, Bakersfield, whatever. It's an hour. It's taking the travel time. So, the point I'm making is we decided last March when we had complete shutdown and still have clients reaching out. We want to get this done. We need to get this done. How are we going to do it? Travel restriction. We went to a virtual model. And what that did for our business was it totally skyrocketed because it allowed us to adapt. And we're still kind of learning it and getting through the kinks of that. But what it allowed us to do was to take that model, apply it, and just move forward with it. Cut down tremendous amount of travel time and you know the tediousness of the scheduling of all those travel, et cetera. Now we're able to do it much more seamlessly, get so much work, more work done. So I think a lot of companies across the spectrum are going to be looking at that as well, which is going to really drastically change job markets and job locations. Yeah, it's funny that you mentioned, because most of our listeners know I'm in the technology industry. And one thing that I go around saying sometimes is that 2020 did more for digital disruption in our customer base than any other marketing campaign or technology could ever have, because you had to evolve to change what you were doing and the way you were doing business. Out of doing some of those virtual tours, I know that jobs and population are usually two big trends to kind of track in terms of where real estate appreciation is more than likely going to happen. Right. Are there any cities that you're seeing specific or maybe is there any criteria that investors should be looking at when they're looking at what is the population growth? What is the job growth that might signify a good market? I mean, there's so many different sites out there that you can track different metrics of that would be for the blooper reel. But one of the things, I mean, cities... I like uh, North Carolina, there's some cities there, the Raleigh, Durham, Triangle, you have a lot of technology going up there. Charlotte as well. Atlanta is a huge you know, job growth. South Florida as well. Jacksonville, Tampa, the, sorry, not South Florida, Central. And Texas, I mean, Arizona, these are all locations where there's tremendous continuous population and job growth in all of those areas. And I think it's only going to continue as people are migrating from the Northeast, especially, and from California. 
100%. I have this theory out there and I don't know if it's right or wrong. So don't take my advice or investment criteria or whatever. But I have this theory that you should look for your bigger metropolitan areas and go about an hour, an hour and a half out where there's some good population mm -hmm. growth, but it's a very yeah. small city mm -hmm. where you can go play because these institutional investors are going to come into an Atlanta or Charlotte and things like that. But if you can find a place like I don't know, Chattanooga or Huntsville or Spartanburg, South Carolina, where people could go to the office for a day a week if they needed to, but then move back out into a smaller environment, less crowded, maybe lower taxes, better cost of living, all those sorts of things. I think those are the cities where I'm kind of tracking as an investor that I want to absolutely. go invest in. I absolutely agree with that. And I'll, and I'll add to that. Also in emerging and growing cities, even just going to kind of outskirts suburbs of those cities, you're going to find a lot of great opportunities there because what we've seen in places like we've mentioned, Charlotte and Atlanta and you know, Dallas, they're just constantly expanding. I mean, the city is literally just eating up more and more and more ground. So if you go out 20 minutes or 30 minutes outside of you know, downtown where it's very expensive to live and you go 20, 30 minutes out, you know, it's much, much cheaper to live, number one, but at the same time, the properties are, are much cheaper. So what you're going to find is those are areas that are going to appreciate much faster because as the cities are expanding, those are, are going to be more popular uh, locations as well. It's funny what you just mentioned is like the Dallas effect, right? If you if anybody <laughs> spent any time in Dallas, you never know what city you're in in Dallas because it's just one big gob of right. city. I mean, I'm sure that's happened since the 80s there is where the city just keeps expanding. I want to switch into kind of our last round of the interview here. And it's the five questions we ask everyone. My first one is, what is your favorite book or taking a page from your book or one that has given you a paradigm shift recently? Uh, I like that question. One of the biggest books that has given me a paradigm shift in general, not, I mean, relatively recently is, and I have touched on some of these concepts before in terms of Gary Vaynerchuk and his style of marketing, it's really changed the way that I looked at business in general and in relationships. And he's got a number of books. So one is called Jab, 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 Right Hook. And what it is there is just, you know, the concept is just add value, add value, add value, add value as much as possible before the sale, before anything you even talk about that. So that to me was just totally eye-opening because it changed the entire way that, you know, salespeople or, or people in business should operate. Yeah, I love that because my father has been in sales for his entire life. He's 74 now. And as I kind of grow up and evolve and things like that, dad's like, well, don't be telling anybody about your ideas and things <laughs> like that because they'll go steal them. And it just shows you the complete paradigm shift from generations that back then the person that had the information was the person with power. Yeah. And now it seems like the paradigm shift is the person that shares the information because A, you need a team and a network, right? Your network is your net worth. But also it's not like they can't go online and go find that information anyways. If more information was the key, we'd all have six pack abs and be multimillionaires, right? It's the bear, you know, the one who holds that information and shares that information is the one who is looked to. So people are going to go to you and they're going to reach out to you because they know you, they like you, they trust you, et cetera. And that's really where the, where the real relationship lies. Yeah. I feel like we just went full circle on the brand conversation there. So that's a good way to close that brand conversation because you're absolutely right. I believe that the person you are 10 years from now is directly proportionate and correlated with the things that you do every day today. What mm -hmm. are some things that you do every day? 
You know, I try to, I mean, there's so many things to do every day, but first thing I do in the morning is because I'm, you know, Orthodox Jew and we are very spiritual. I mean, I am, <laughs> and we pray a lot. So I'll spend a long time in the morning, first thing before doing anything else, before looking at my phone, before opening anything, focus on praying. And we do this communally. So in, you know, synagogue, and that's something that's really important because it kind of sets the tone of our whole day, kind of our relationship with God and the relationship with our, the world around us and everything that we do. And so there's some really, really important stuff that lies deeply in there. But another thing that I would say that I do consistently in business every day is I make introductions every single day. I will make sure like a day does not go by that I don't connect to people, that I don't make some sort of introduction. Because like you said, 10 years from now, think about it. If you were to introduce one person every single day in 10 years, that means you have I mean, that's, it's ridiculous when you think of the number of people, I mean, you're talking about like over 5,000 people you are connecting every single day. I mean, like I said, one person a day, it's usually sometimes 10 people a day, but thousands of people that you can have in your close network that making those introductions and you have no idea where those things can lead to and the opportunities that can come from that. Yeah, there's a lot I want to say about all of that, but I will say that I was taking out my toes to count how many people that would be. But this concept of little actions lead to big results if they're done consistently enough. And I always say that consistency will beat talent hands down if you give it a long enough time period. So that little concept of one a day, I'm not trying to boil the ocean, just one a day. And if I look back on it, that's how many ever people 10 years right. from now. So I, right. I love that. And it also reaffirms your brand. We're coming back to it as a, just a giver of value. The next question is, what is the best piece of advice that you've ever been given? And we all know that the best advice received is when it's asked for. So what's the best piece of advice you've ever been given? Yeah, that's, that's exactly right. It really does come only when you ask for it. And what that means is when you're ready for it. Okay. If you're not ready for advice, it's not not going to help you at all. Like you said, you'd ever want to have a six pack. If you're not ready for it, it's not going to help you. Probably the best advice I ever got was from my father. And it was very like almost word for word, something that you just said a few minutes ago, which was that the choices that you make dictate the life that you lead. Something very simple that he said, I remember very vividly when I was a kid and that it just, it settled in there. And it, it means that the little things that you do on a daily basis, that's really going to create who you are and the type of life that you're going to lead. So make the right choices. And I mean, as a teenager or adolescent, those were things that uh, kind of rang true because I saw kind of drastically how certain choices and certain things, how they played out and how other friends, other choices, how they, those things played out and things like that. So very wise, wise advice. I love it. I, I'm smiling too, because in this morning I was listening to a Tony Robbins clip and he talked about, you feel what you focus on. And I think that's a perfect example of make the right decisions, focus your attention on the right things. The next question is, what are you the most proud of in life? You know, as a father of six children, I think any parent, any time you discuss proud of, it's always going to go back to your children. Right. I mean, it doesn't matter <laughs> what else you've accomplished in life. If you're not focused and your children don't give you the pride, then then I don't know what will in life. But so I don't want to say anything specific because there's so many things, but I think just that concept. What ages do they range from? What's your youngest and what's your oldest? My oldest, she's 16 and my youngest is six. Well, fortunately, the 16 year old knows everything. So you don't really even have to of course. worry about her anymore. <laughs> 
All right, our last question is, if you could sit down and eat a bowl of ice cream with anyone, dead or alive, who would it be and why? Probably the people that I would want to sit down with wouldn't even eat ice cream <laughs> because, you know, it, it's just an interesting concept. But what I mean by that is I'm very, you know, I would be totally uh, fortunate to sit down with some of the great uh, Jewish sages because that's really what my life is kind of focused on. You know, I'm in business and I'm in real estate and all that, but that's, to me, that's kind of like, all ancillary to really who I am and what I do. And I feel I'm a very spiritual person. I study a lot. I, I, you know, I pray a lot and that's, so these great giants who, you know, came before us, I couldn't probably, if I had to name one, it would probably be uh, Rabbi Akiva. He was a great person from the second century. You just touched on one of my key concepts that I've preached a lot in 2020 is the work you do is what you do. It's not who you are. And I think you've really helped us really understand who you are as a person through this. And I'm super excited that you've spent some time with us and had shed that light on us. You've given us some value in what you do. You've given us some value on who you are. You know, if there's a way for people to reach out to you and connect with you and learn more about you, where would be the best place we could direct them? Probably the best place would be LinkedIn. I mean, like we said before, that's obvious place because I'm active there and check that probably more often than check my email. That's for sure. Or you can go to yonawice.com and check out everything we're doing there, including uh, the podcast, Weiss Advice, and the cost segregation, anything you want to know about that. Awesome. Well, we'll put links in the show notes, but I'm super appreciative of your time. If you're listening to this show and you got value from this, Weiss Advice, again, is probably one of the best real estate podcasts I've listened to in a long time. You do a phenomenal job over there in, in teaching value. So thank you again for your time, and we look forward to having you at some time in the future. Thank you so much, Matt. Thank you for listening to Ice Cream with Investors. If you like what we serve you here, it would mean the world to me if you would like, subscribe, and leave a review on your favorite podcast app.